Bishop Strickland's ignominious dismissal. Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, was forcibly removed as ordinary from his diocese. No penal cause was given. Apparently, he is simply too Catholic, too faithful to Christ. Do we have a Pope who wants to excommunicate tradition? Given the circumstances, what options does Bishop Strickland have? And what about the ordinary man in the pew? How can he resist unjust edicts and Francis's attempt to create a different church? All this and more is discussed by Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara in a special edition of Church and State. Welcome to a special edition of Church and State with Chris Ferrara and Brian McCall. And although we released an episode fairly recently, some big news broke in the last few days. And although this is typically Church and State, we're mostly going to talk about the church today. Because that big news is that Pope Francis has removed from the see of Tyler, Texas, Bishop Joseph Strickland. The reports are, the explanation is, the Pope asked him to resign and he refused, and then two days later, an order came which was signed off by Pope Francis, removing him and placing an apostolic administrator over the diocese. Now, Bishop Strickland is only 65 years old, so he wasn't (laughs) removed for age. The only two reasons that I've seen given in the press are, this comes from the Vatican, from Bishop DiNardo, who is the Metropolitan, are one, that the apostolic visit that Francis orchestrated in uh, June recommended that he, it was untenable for him to be bishop because of his social media accounts. So I call this the Donald Trump accusation. He has mean tweets. Then the second one is that uh, from Strickland himself. He said they did raise objections, and one of which is that I did not fully implement traditionus custodis and cancel all of the Latin masses. And he said, I am not going to leave the people in my diocese starving. So here's a picture of Bishop Strickland. They're the only two reasons given. Again, I've not heard any accusations of monetary theft, financial corruption, sexual violations of the Sixth and Ninth Commandment, blessing homosexual marriages. Nope, none of that. He actually, his diocese has one of the fullest seminaries. They have over 20 candidates studying in their diocese for the priesthood. It's in financially good shape. And that's really the story. It took a lot of people, not me too much, but a lot of people by surprise that Francis just sort of brutally removed him. So let's just talk about Strickland first, and we're going to answer kind of how the different reactions to it. So first, you're just first reaction to his removal, Chris. Well, you know, we have legal training, so we always ask the question, what's the issue? (laughs) And the issue is not that Bishop Strickland did anything wrong. No, the issue is that he did everything right. Yes. (laughs) So he was removed for the worst of all canonical delicts in the minds of the post-conciliar fanatics who are now controlling the levers of power in the church. That delict is nothing other than, wait for it, suspicion of orthodoxy. <laughs> you might be Catholic. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, he was too Catholic for this pope, yeah. who has already said, and these are his own words, what we don't need is a new church. We need a different church. So he wants us to have a different church than the one we have rather grown accustomed to over two millennia. You know, that's not the church that he wants. 
And the attitude that he exhibits, and this was the story about him before he became Pope, is that of a Peronist party boss. He thinks he's in charge of the church in the way that a party boss is in charge of a political party or the way a CEO is in charge of a corporation. So bishops who are successors of the apostles by reason of their consecration, even if it is the pope who consecrates them personally, are treated as if they were employees at will (laughs) of a business who can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. I don't like your face. In this case, I don't like your tendency toward orthodoxy, which Francis considers rigidity. So you're fired, basically. That's what happened here. He was summarily fired from his job of bishop. This is how the Pope sees the church, as something totally under his control. He is an authoritarian. He is a dictator pope. There's even a book by that title. It's manifest that he's a dictator who talks about synodality while he centralizes power and exercises it in a brutal authoritarian way that we have not seen in the history of the church. We've seen authoritarian popes, but only popes who did authoritarian things to feather their own nests. Back, for example, when the Roman families were picking popes. But this pope is using his authority in a dictatorial way to undermine, in every department, it seems, Catholic orthodoxy. And Bishop Strickland was a predictable victim of that. Now, there's been two broad reactions to this that we can spend some time on. The first are the papologists. The Pope, by virtue of his office, can never do anything wrong, right? And you just have to contort yourself into weird positions to find the secret message of actually how this is really great. And so there's those out there, oh, then he must have been a horrible person. The Pope can never do anything wrong. And again, is that, let's deal with that really quickly. That's clearly not what the Catholic Church teaches about the papacy, that it is some inerrant in every decision, every act of governance, everything, you know, he does must be perfect and is not subject to criticism. Well, we know this, uh, of course, from tradition itself, but also from the pronouncement of Pope Benedict, who said the Pope is not an absolute dictator whose will is law. He is bound to tradition. He is bound to hand down what was given to him in an endless, unbroken succession since the founding of the church by Christ himself. So, and also, Benedict said, the Pope must not promote his own ideas. Well, what is this pontificate but the promotion of Francis's idiosyncratic, self-destructive theology, which would reduce the church to basically <laughs> the equivalent of the Episcopalians? The problem with Bishop Strickland, from his perspective, is that Strickland insisted on retaining the deposit of the faith and the received and approved mass mass right in the Western Church, and he was not going to abolish it because the Pope decided that that would be the right thing to do, because the Pope is not an absolute dictator. So what are the practical solutions to this? People want to know. I'll throw that one to you for the first attempt, and then so, I'll chime yeah. in. And that's the second reaction. Again, some, we have to resist. We have to resist. And it's a good slogan in a certain sense, but I think what a lot of people know is what does that mean? Practically, what will we do? And I think part of our problem is the answer to that, St. Thomas Aquinas gives a very detailed answer to when can you resist a lawful superior. And he lists, first, they've stolen the office. They're not really the superior, so nothing they do is valid. That's the state of a conscious way out. Well, you resist by saying he's not the Pope. But sadly, in our modern world, a lot of people have reduced his reasons to just that. 
that either he's in the office or he's not. If he's in the office, do whatever he says, no resistance. Otherwise, he's out. And again, that's the dead end of Sadiqantism. But he gives other reasons. He says, secondly, maybe he's legitimately office, but he's ordering you to do something contrary to the divine and natural law. So he is, the superior is telling you to do something contrary to Christ's instructions. And he says, in that case, even if he is a prelate, you can't do it. You can't follow it. Thirdly, he doesn't actually order you to do something directly against the divine and natural law, but he issues an unjust order. And in that case, Aquinas says it's, it's a little bit of a mixed reaction. He says it depends what it is. If it's just personally unjust against you, so you're just suffering an injustice, then it might be prudent to just bear with it. Just suffer it, offer it to God. But if it is an injustice which affects the common good, so it's not just merely a personal persecution of you, but it somehow harms the common good, then you may actually refuse to obey the order. So I think before we get into the specifics, a lot of these principles have been just so boiled down to, as I said, is he the Pope or not? And that's the only answer that we've lost sight of these other avenues. And people feel like if, if I want to resist this, I have to say he's not the Pope, which is really not necessary. So on these, I would say, first, it depends. If Pope Francis, well, he's done several times, he does again, comes out and says, all Catholics have believed since the beginning of uh, the church that capital punishment, if exercised by legitimate authority under certain conditions, is morally permissible and sometimes required. If Pope Francis says, I don't believe that anymore, you don't have to follow him, right? Because he's going against what the church has taught as part of divine revelation. If he goes and says, it's actually not a sin to, you know, engage in simulations of the marriage act with someone of your own sex, you don't follow him, you don't, because he is teaching something contrary to divine and natural law. And I think that's the easiest for us to understand. And you also, you also denounce the error too. To the extent of your station in life, right? So right. I mean, you, if you're a bishop, you have to denounce it in a very public way, uh, obviously. But then you get to the question of these these questions of governance, which is the Strickland case. So if a judgment is made about how to govern the church, he's not directly saying believe something contrary to the faith. It really comes down to what is the this effect. And that's why, you know, some people, they bring up the example, say, of Padre Pio. Well, he was ordered not to say public mass. And he just went along with it. Well, he was a friar in a monastery. He was not responsible for any laity. And it was you know, a suffering for him, but it didn't really affect the common good. Take a case like Archbishop Lefebvre, who decided, okay, they've told me I'm suppressed, but it's not just me. If it was just me, he even said, I would just go away. But no one is training priests. They have nowhere to get ordained, and I need to do this for the common good of the church, and so I'm, I'm going to resist. And I think that's the level of analysis that has to has to go on. So that's my first attempt. <laughs> well, first of all, the removal from office is unjust. Yeah. Privation would be the grounds for removal, but that involves a canonical crime. So there was no canonical crime. You have an unjust removal, so you have an abuse of power by, granted, the supreme authority of the church. What can you do in that case? Well, you could make an argument that the common good is affected because what's going to happen now is that Francis will arrange for some ecclesiastical dingling to replace Strickland, who will ruin the seminary, abolish all the Latin masses, and inflict tremendous damage on the common good of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. 
But the analysis doesn't end there. Because even if he refused to vacate his see, he would not have the support of the diocesan apparatus. Then there would be problems with law enforcement, perhaps. Perhaps law enforcement would be summoned to evict him from his see. It would be counterproductive. So the avenue of I refuse to vacate my see probably would not be indicated here, even though it could be justified in principle as the abuse of power being resisted because it's an unjust command that affects not just Strickland, but the common good of that diocese. Now, Father Gruner always cited the example of Bishop Grotest, Grotest yes. in 1251, who received a papal mandate to create a diocesan see for the Pope's nephew. And the bishop said, I'm not doing that. That's a ridiculous abuse of power. It's a famous example of a bishop saying, nothing doing, you cannot abuse your authority in that way. And so I resist that command. And that was a command of governance. So yes. that's an historical example that you could cite. But would it work in Tyler, Texas? No, because of the diocesan structure, because of the Conference of Catholic Bishops. Strickland would be an outcast. He would not have the support of either the diocesan apparatus or the Conference of Catholic Bishops, which itself is a novelty, of course. And Francis would at some point probably just declare that he's excommunicated. So that would get us nowhere. So what can we do practically? I would say that in a sense, Strickland has been freed to do a different kind of apostolate. He may not be a local ordinary, but now he can go around the world freed of the obligations of being a local ordinary and champion legitimate resistance to the Pope's novelties, to his obvious attempt to destroy the traditions of the church in every way that he seems empowered to do, and even though he doesn't have the authority to do it. So he could become a leader of the resistance. Now, that has its own perils, because Francis may then, even in that case, say, you're excommunicated. I wouldn't put anything past him. So he's in a difficult position, but I think the only practical solution to the problem is not to defy the Pope and say, I'm not vacating my see, that won't work, but he can become essentially an ombudsman for the traditionalist movement. Well, and again, I agree with your analysis because another angle that the scholastics always said when resisting a tyrant, which again, we, I think we both agree, this is a tyrant. This is someone who's governing for his own personal pleasure is you have to have a reasonable likelihood of success. So if you're going to resist a tyrant from a prudential standpoint, you can't just do it if you have no reasonable chance of success. And if your analysis is right, the priest, the diocese wouldn't support him. The apparatus wouldn't. Then you could conclude that. But again, take an example of another bishop, Bishop Antonio de Castromayor in Campos, Brazil, refused to resign, and he stayed in, in and refused to implement the new mass for many, many years. But he had the priests behind him. The priests of the diocese, the entire diocesan apparatus said, yeah, we're staying with you. They even appointed another bishop off to the side to try to get everybody away. Nobody really left. But he had that, what you're talking about, and he resisted. Uh, until he was really just too old to carry on. But that, again, is an example. Now, I think you're probably right from what I've read about Tyler. I think he probably doesn't have enough support to do this, and it would be a bit of a fool's crusade. But I think in principle, if he did have that support, I think he would be justified. But prudentially, I think you're right. We have a very difficult, really rather astonishing situation here. We have a pope who is acting as if he, he were the schismatic. <laughs> We're not pronouncing him as schismatic. We're not declaring that he's outside the church. 
what the theological writers, including Torquemada and a couple of others, have essayed the possibility of a schismatic pope. Now, de facto, he's acting like a schismatic because he wants to excommunicate tradition, summarily removing a bishop who's doing nothing more than promoting the traditional Catholic faith in his diocese, including the Latin liturgy. So this is a really unusual situation. Maybe you could justify another type of campos arrangement, Mm. a holding action, but I don't think it would work in Tyler, Texas. But it may it may be the case that this has to be done more than once. Mm. If he's going to go around and systematically remove every bishop who exhibits a vestige of traditional Catholicism and is holding forth against his steamroller attempt to give us a different church, they may arise, and he himself, Francis has admitted this, there may arise a situation in which he, the Pope, provokes schisms that are warranted under the circumstances. They would be de facto schisms. In other words, they would not occupy diocesan real estate, but they would be faithful Catholics, Hmm. as during the time of the Arian heresy. So Francis has admitted that I may be the Pope that causes schisms. He's also said in one of his many interviews, I'm not afraid of schisms. I hope they don't happen, but I'm not afraid of them. So this is the Pope who's willing to force people out of the church in order to impose his own vision of what the church should be. And when I say force them out of the church, I mean the visible church, the real estate. Right. The formal buildings. But they would be exiled to the desert and they would be Catholics. Yes. Well, let's take it down another level to the, again, that's at the level of Bishop Strickland. Let's take it down to the, the man in the pew in Tyler, Texas. You know, what can he do to bring this forward? And I just want to tell a little story about an old Italian gentleman I know, uh, who during COVID, when his local parish shut for the pandemic, every week he would call up Monday morning to the church office. Are you going to open the church this week? No, 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 we're not going to open the church. But you can still send your envelope in. We're looking for your donation. He said, you bring the mass back, I'll bring my donation back. Until then, you're not getting a penny from me. And he would hang up every Monday. And he did this for months on end. So, I mean, that's, again, in terms of resistance, we have an obligation under the precepts of the church to support the church. But that doesn't mean we have to pour money into coffers of tyrants that are attacking us. So I would suggest, if you're there, I'm not contributing to the Vatican, to the to the diocese, until this is, write a letter, until this injustice is remedied, I've made my last donation. I think you're perfectly justified in doing that. That almost goes without saying, and I think we've seen that effect happening with Peter's Pence. It's dropping drastically. Because, first of all, these craven bishops who buckled to the COVID tyranny in fear of a flu-like illness and shut down all their churches, drove away their own flocks, and a substantial number of them will never come back. So for that reason alone, Peter's Pence is declining. But I think also there's a significant reaction among serious Catholics not to donate to the wrecking crew that now occupies the Vatican. Yep. And that is also reflected in Peter's Pence. So that, it goes without saying, you should not be contributing anything to the current Vatican apparatus, the operations of that cabal of neo-modernist insurrectionists that's now running things. It's clearly clearly the case that this is a neo-modernist insurrection in full bloom. I mean, what more do we need to see after this ridiculous synod on synodality, which is just paving the way, as Cardinal Mueller says, for the acceptance of sodomitical unions 
and divorce and remarriage and the ordination of at least women deacons, if not women priests in the church. Again, Francis says he wants a different church. We can't support that. We don't want a different church. We want the Catholic Church. Sorry. No more money from us. Now, I, you should, of course, contribute to the extent that you can to your local parish where it has a Latin mass community, because not all of the donations are earmarked for diocesan purposes. Uh, and again, yeah, you don't just say, oh, great, I'm going to go on an extra vacation this year because I don't have to support the church. Right. But you can, maybe you have no parish near that is safe to give to. Well, send it to a traditional seminary somewhere. You know, you can direct your support of the church to something that's actually Catholic and don't need to just drop your envelope into the diocese where they're destroying the church. Absolutely. You know, that, that triggers something in my thinking about this. I think Francis is actually, I really hate to use the name. Can I just, can I just say Bergoglio? I think he's playing a game of whack-a-mole with tradition. Because he can suppress it in one place, but it's going to pop up in another place. Because it's from God. Yes. And if it's from God, and meaning the received and approved right of the Latin Mass in the Western Church, and the constant teaching of the Church on faith and morals, he can't destroy it. He can suppress it here or there, but it's going to pop up somewhere else. And as we speak, the only seminaries that have substantial vocations are either traditionalist seminaries or quasi-traditionalist seminaries in dioceses where there's some degree of sanity. You know, if you build it, they will come. So if you build a traditional seminary, it will be filled. Even if you make some inroads in the direction of tradition, people will flock to that. The conservative Novus Ordo Masses are oases in the midst of all this insanity. People drive 30, 40 miles to go to even a conservative or more conservative Novus Ordo. And the traditionalist parishes are bursting at the seams. And a lot of these bishops realize that the traditionalist parishes, to put it crudely, are cash cows. <laughs> and so they're stealthily ignoring traditionalis custodis. That Bishop Strickland might have been more vocal about it, but most of the bishops in the world, I think, that have Latin mass communities are finding ways to let them continue. So Francis's effort to crush the Latin mass here or there is just going to fail ultimately. And then, of course, he will pass from the scene sooner or later. Absolutely. I mean, as St. Athanasius famously said, they have the buildings, but we have the faith. But someday we'll have the buildings, too. So, Well, we're coming on the 60th year. I mean, the Aryan yeah. crisis lasted 60, 65 years before, paradoxically enough, the reigning emperor at the time brought about the end of the Aryan heresy in alliance with the pope. So we're in the 60th year, so maybe in a year or two, when this pope passes from the scene, by some miracle, the conclave will give us another Benedict. And by the way, we don't think Benedict was Pius X, but look what he did with a few simple acts of governance. Yes. Samorum Pontificum, correcting the ridiculous mistranslations of the Novus Ordo Mass, lifting the excommunications of the four bishops of the Society of St. Pius X. A restoration was underway all over the church where before you were forbidden to enter a church to offer the Latin Mass, suddenly in Europe, on pilgrimages that I participated in, it was right this way, right this way. Of course you can have the Latin Mass, because the Pope said so. Well, that's that's exactly what Francis is trying to reverse, but he won't succeed ultimately. And that's part of it. If we're talking about resistance, you have to remember, we have our Lord's assurance. The gates of hell will not prevail. This infiltration of the church, this undermining... Uh, as bad as it may get, will not succeed. And really, resisting really means just holding out, keeping the faith, passing it on to your children. Again, pulling your kids out of the diocesan school, perhaps. I mean, I talked to many families who, during COVID, realized 
they were not, their children were not learning anything Catholic in a so-called Catholic school, pulled them out and, uh, you know, looked for other alternatives, whether it was homeschooling or another, another schooling option. But that's another form of resistance. Again, my great grandparents generation, they could just send all their kids down the street, go walk to school because at any Catholic school in the country, you would at least get the rudiments of the faith. But you can't as a parent just assume that anymore. And that's again another form, I think, of practical resistance. I'm not sending my kids to your school because you're not teaching them the faith. And there's also a fundamental dynamic of resistance that's going to reverse this insanity sooner or later. And that, of course, is the work of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost will see to it that there are oases of tradition until the current Pope passes from the scene, until we get a Pope who is a true reformer and wants to restore the church just as it was restored after the Council of Trent. So resistance is going on right now by the Godhead through the operation of the Holy Ghost, and that will not be denied. Sooner or later, there will be a restoration. We have to act as human agents, that's true. But let's never think that this is some sort of political struggle and that we have to use tactics of politics as the only way to bring about a restoration. No, we do what we can do within our sphere of competence, according to our stations in life. And if we do that, if we honor our duties to family and fulfill what is required of us according to our station, the Holy Ghost will handle the rest. So it's not a recipe for quietism. Oh, we'll just sit back. The Holy Ghost will take care of it. We have to do what we have to do. But we're doing it with his assistance. And you're right. That's an important point because I know our, our good friend, Dr. John Rao, could give more many more examples, but many times in the history of the church, the reform, the restoration comes from a place nobody was looking. So people I've seen online who are discouraged, oh, Strickland was the future, he was the hope, it's all over. You know, sometimes God's already working that restoration, already raising the person up who's going to, but we can't see it until after the fact. So we sort of pin our hopes on some person. Again, I'm not criticizing Bishop Strickland. I think what he was doing was good. But if we pin our hopes on this is the person, this is the guy, he's going to fix it, God may actually be working somewhere else that we can't see yet. That's right. So we're not saying just passively submit. We're saying do what you can to actively oppose the errors that are propagating everywhere and to preserve the faith as much as you can in local ecclesial communities. But the Holy Ghost is at work. This is the foundation of the mission of the church, the operation of the Holy Ghost in time, and that will be vindicated ultimately. There will be a restoration. It's happening already. If you look at some of the priests that are coming out of the seminaries now, the young priests, I read an article somewhere about how the myth of the progressive priest is vanishing daily. Because it seems to me that those who escape the seminary, who have laid low in some of these heterodox seminaries, or who are being prepared for the ministry of the priesthood and the more orthodox ones, are almost uniformly (laughs) conservative. They want the real thing. And many of them, I would say the majority of them, either have learned or want to learn the traditional Latin mass. I went to confession not too long ago in the pro-cathedral in Richmond, and I encountered one of the finest confessors in that Novus Ordo milieu that I have ever encountered in my entire life. Totally Catholic, totally pious. The spiritual advice was perfection of spiritual advice. And I went out of that confessional. I told someone standing in the confessional line, I was so impressed by the experience. That is one great priest. So the Holy Ghost is working. 
was going to be a, a, a resurgence of the traditional priesthood. The Latin mass movement is a young people's movement. Francis is a nasty, intolerant, vindictive old man whose time is limited, very limited. We should pray for him as we would pray for even our worst enemy that he will see the light or, or that in some way, even if it's on his deathbed, like, like John the 22nd, he will convert. And that yes. will, we don't hate him, but we do have to stand up and oppose him in the certain conviction that the Holy Ghost will set things right, whether Francis likes it or not. And I think that's really the, the heart of it. Do what you can in your own sphere, whatever that is. Parents teach your children. Don't put money into, into the destruction of the church. Do what you can do. Keep the faith and leave the rest up to God. That's all we can do. Leave it up to the Blessed Mother and, and her son who will take what we do. Because again, it, we have to do our part. God, you know, God helps those that help themselves in the sense that he wants us to show our effort that we want it, even if he, it's bigger than we are and he's going to have to do it himself. I really believe that in spite of the appearances of absolute decrepitude and disaster in the church, that the integral faith is available in places that amount to availability for the number of people who actually want the integral faith. Yes. And that those places will experience growth as more and more people discover it in those places and flock to those places. Again, he can't stamp it out everywhere. He's going to lose the game of whack-a-mole with tradition. There you have it. Chris is pronounced. Whack-a-mole will be lost. There's his, there's his prediction. Because the Holy Ghost is, is on our side of the game. Yes. Right. Wow. Well, there you have it. I hope that's helped, uh, all of you who listen to, uh, make some sense of this, this tragedy that happened this past couple days and, uh, that it will, you'll see things for what they are, not live in the delusion of Sadivacantism or papolatry. But see things for what they are, but not lose hope, and just do what you can do. And sooner or later, there will be the restoration. Yes, absolutely. Our Lady of Good Success said, when all seems lost, that is exactly when the restoration will begin. So in some unexpected way, it will happen. Let's just hope it happens while we're alive. You're a lot younger than I am, so I hope it happens when I'm alive. Great. Well, thank you, Chris, and we'll be back for our regular church and state in a couple weeks, but I hope you've all enjoyed this, and God bless you. Take care. Church and State with Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara is brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. The message of Fatima is the solution for our time. Only she can help us. It is therefore urgent that we live according to Our Lady's message and share it with everyone we know. For more resources and to support this vital apostolate with your donation, visit our website, Fatima.org or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us and long live Christ the King.